Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Bill Bonner is out of step. He's out of step with the mainstream media, out of step with modern economic theories, out of step with much of the ascendant social thought and popular isms of our times. In fact, he's so out of step with what academics, policy wonks, and politicians know to be true, the average man is in real danger of finding himself largely in agreement with what Bill has to say. In an era of unwavering certainty and ideological dogmatism, where the prevailing consensus is so utterly self-assured that its subsequious acolytes remain ever at the ready to cancel anyone who dares deviate from the accepted wisdom, Bill brings to the conversation that most offensive, intolerable punctuation sign of them all, the question mark. Where others sharpen their exclamation points, preparing to engage in all caps battle royales in anonymous online comment sections, Bill scratches his head and quietly wanders aloud. He remains, in accordance with one of his own oft-cited dictums, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, and always in doubt. In stark contrast to the platoon of cyber-know-it-alls, who can comfortably condense their wit and wisdom into 140-character tweets or less, and with plenty of room to spare, one suspects, Bill has spent the past 20 years thinking, musing, and reckoning carefully over his subjects, trying to connect the dots, as he says. Even now, after half a dozen books, many thousands of columns, and more words published than the average millennial knows exist, one gets the feeling Bill has plenty of intellectual room still left to explore. When it comes to slaying sacred cows, on both the left and the right, Bill operates what might be called an equal opportunity abattoir, taking aim at unsound money, phony bailouts, make-work boondoggles, would-be world improvers, the welfare warfare state, inner beltway grifters, and anyone claiming to know what they cannot possibly comprehend, something Friedrich Hayek once called the pretense of knowledge. The idea that the Fed knows what inflation rate we need is up there in the pantheon of other idiotic ideas, like the Fed knows what interest rate country needs. How does it know these things? <laughs> and the Fed knows what the unemployment rate should be. How do they know these things? They, of course, they don't know them at all. It's, a, as you say, a pretense of knowledge, which is very destructive and very dangerous. A modern-day gadfly of sorts, Bill happily calls into question the kind of unexamined assumptions that so vexed the great philosophers who came before him penning his daily missives with, as he once put it, the happy nonchalance of a chicken laying an egg. Putting his ideas into practice, Bill even went so far as to build his own agora, a global marketplace for the free exchange of ideas, which operates in a dozen or so countries around the world, publishing books, newsletters, and research services, 
from the US to the UK, Brazil, India, China, Australia, France, South Africa, Argentina, and plenty of other places besides. A keen student of history, Bill is equally at home quoting Cicero as he is Johnny Cash, as comfortable behind the conference podium as he is on horseback, and happy enough to paint his own shutters, fix his own Ford pickup, and decline his own Latin nouns. Thank you very much. In addition to all that and more, he's also the founder of Bonner Private Research Group, to which this podcast owes its existence. I caught up with Bill recently when he called in from his ranch, located in the remotest mountain ranges in far northern Argentina. Bill generously shared his thoughts on everything from life in the time of COVID-19, the problem with spending other people's money, and lessons to be learned from a century of unflinching commitment to boneheaded ideas as applied down here on the Pampas. The connection was not great, as you'll hear, but Bill's ideas were, as usual, reliably out of step with the mainstream, and as such, well worth your listening. My conversation with Bill, up next. Anyway, how are things? Uh, how are things up in Salta with you and Elizabeth? How's the piano playing going? Well, the piano playing is going very slowly, but it's uh, I'm making progress, and now I can play a couple of uh, tango tunes in a, in a slightly simplified version. Oh, <laughs> but, okay. Uh, coming along, it's been a great pleasure uh, to have the piano here. It's just a kind of an unexpected delight. Yeah, so for for the rest of us who I know you were just talking with with Anya about uh, the lockdown situation here in the capital, but for the rest of us in capital cities who are uh, you know suffering under the never-ending lockdown, uh, give us an idea about what it's like to be up in Salta where you are. It's such a such a special, unique place. You you get to go on horseback rides and all kinds of outdoor activity, which the rest of us are very jealous yeah, of. Yeah, well, we are we are just very, very lucky because we're in a place where we don't really notice a lockdown until we venture out and try to go to the city or something. There is a police control not far from here, which we have to pass every time we go into town or up to our ranch, and but they know us. And so they just wave us through because they know who we are. And uh, in, in fact, it's, it's very agreeable here. <laughs> the weather is yeah. nice. These are warm. And uh, we do pretty much what we would do even if there were a lockdown. We, we <laughs> just, uh, you know, there are, no, there are no restaurants or bars or anything anyway. So mm. we're not missing much. It's very pretty here because we're in a valley. And there's snow. There's, at the end of the valley is a mountain, and it's covered with snow. And down here, it's green. It's warming up because it's already springtime here. So uh, it's very pretty. Mm. Yeah. So just on that point, speaking of the the turning of the seasons and uh, that kind of thing, the last time you and I spoke, we sort of touched on the idea um, expressed by the the ancients, east and west. You find it in the Bible as well. That of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, when we get to uh, as far as empires go, uh, America has been the top dog, you know, certainly since World War II and probably for some time before that. But uh, I, I'm just wondering where you think we are on that, uh, on that cycle with regards to uh, the American 
rise and rise or are we already in the decline? <laughs> uh, well, I think we're in the decline. Um, I think the decline, I think the U.S. peaked out about 1999. And uh, I don't think that, I, mean, I think the, the beginning of the decline occurred much before that. After, and by the way, there, there's nothing nothing wrong about this. I mean, people, there's no, there's no reason to think that the U.S. empire would be any different from any other empire. And all empires, like every other living thing, you know, they come and they go. And so what it appears to me is that back in the, after the war, the U, at World War II, that is, the U.S. was really on top of the heap in every way, so far ahead that we had such a, a nice cushion we were, you know, after the war, the other major uh, economies were either bombed out or spent out. You know, Britain was out of money. France was, had been largely hollowed out during the war. And uh, Germany and Japan, of course, were just totally dysfunctional. So after the war, America was in the number one position and so far ahead that uh, it had little to fear from any competitor at all. And so uh, that kind of puts you in a, in, a, in a position to ruin yourself because you, <laughs> you then think that you're, you, you think you're untouchable. And so it, the, the natural thing happened, which was the government got more and more involved in the economy over time, spent more and more money over time, started spending money it didn't have. And, uh, and, and then in 1971, because it had spent too much money, on guns and butter, which was to say the war in Vietnam and the great society programs, that uh, the Nixon administration felt compelled and was uh, driven to that by uh, Milton Friedman, among others, who thought that a flexible currency would be better. Mm. And now we see, because it wasn't so obvious then, in fact, it was hardly visible, but uh, now we see that the effect of that that new currency was to kind of undermine the whole foundations of the society over time. And because we could print money, we didn't have to make so many things because we could just buy things from overseas. And that seemed like a nice situation for a long time until we realized that because we didn't have to make things, our factories had disappeared. And the, and the people who rely on factory wages, which are typically you know, uh, you know, less than college educated uh, working class people, those people found that their incomes didn't go anywhere from 1975 up until today. You know, they, in, in real terms, the working class man earns less today than he did 50 years ago. That's an extraordinary thing to happen. And happen at a time when there were more patents, more new technology, more new corporations more investment, more capital, everything that the free enterprise idea tells us should produce wealth were happening and happening in grand quantities, but not producing wealth for the average person. And so we had the makings there of a very dangerous and difficult situation, a society that does not make its, most of its people better. And uh, you look more co closely and you can see how that works in greater detail because the system of fake money, which is what be they began printing in 1971, 
favored a fake economy, not the real economy. And so they could, the credit that was available because you could print money went naturally to big corporations and it went to big borrowers and speculators and Wall Street and the top 10% of the country that owned these financial assets, which were bid up by this cheap credit. And so we have this, this situation now where the top 10% are much richer than they used to be, but the most people are not richer at all. And so that, that inequality everybody talks about, but nobody seems to want to look at it very carefully. Instead, they want to fix it without understanding what caused it. And the fixes are inevitably more of what actually caused it. <laughs> that is to say, <laughs> more credit, more money printing, more giveaways, more government programs, more meddling in the economy. All the things that have helped to undermine the U.S. economy over the last 50 years, those things are now very popular. <laughs> and they're going <laughs> to be a lot more popular, I predict, as the inevitable effect that they have uh, occurs, which is to say the economy weakens. By the way, the GDP growth rate in the U.S. has gone down practically every decade for the last five, and it, under Donald Trump is the lowest ever recorded. I mean, mm -hmm. the, this idea that you see Donald Trump uh, promotes, Republicans promote that he created a great economy is just not true. The economy was as weak as it ever was and uh, headed for disaster because uh, it gets deeper and deeper into debt. Donald Trump's administration added more debt than any other administration. They, and what we see is a lower GDP rate, GDP growth rate, and softening of the economy generally. generally. And so now these things were already underway when the COVID came, and then they, they had two disastrous, made two disastrous mistakes. The first was to shut down the economy. And I don't really blame anybody for that because at first, you know, they were looking at these uh, predictions that came from Neil Ferguson from, uh, from England, and they were talking about 2 million people were going to die. And so, sure, they hit the panic button. But within a week after that, that was March 13th, within a week, we knew that that wasn't true. We knew then because the numbers were coming in from Italy and they were showing that this was not like the great black death plague. This was more like a virus, more like a seasonal flu. And what happened was it came like a flu, like a virus, and it swept over the population and it killed people who were vulnerable, people typically whose immune systems weren't working very well. And those are old people primarily and people with these pre-existing conditions. So we knew, within a week, we knew, wait a minute, this is not the Black Death at all. This is a seasonal flu, and what we should do is try to isolate the people who are most vulnerable to it. But they didn't do that. Instead, they continued, you know, Donald Trump announced, uh, gave a, a state of emergency uh, speech, and then the, <laughs> then the state governors went to work, some of them terribly, some of them not so badly, but the result was a kind of catastrophe in the economy where 40 million people had to unemployment. And then, you know, that was bad enough. And then along comes the federal government with more of the dopiest ideas. <laughs> and they decided to give everybody a, 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 a unemployment bonus. 
And it ended up that a lot of people were getting twice as much being unemployed than they got when they were when they were on the job. Mm-hmm. And these kind of disincentives then cropped up everywhere and you had people getting loans. One guy got a, a small business loan, which was on his business in, in business throughout the crisis. And uh, he used it to buy a Maserati. These are the things that happen when the government gets meddling in an economy, which we all know very well. It just doesn't work very well. Mm. And so now we're in a position where the whole economy has come to rely on zero interest rates, which are bad enough because they encourage people to, to borrow rather than to save, and on giveaways. You know, if you get unemployed, the government will give you a giveaway, give you a unemployment bonus, which might be more than you were earning. And then if your business is going down the tubes, if you're a big business, you get a bailout. If you're a little business, you get in line and maybe you'll get a bailout, maybe you won't. But the whole system now is corrupt and ailing. Right. And it's pro- it's not that the, the everybody thinks well it's going to bounce back, but it's not bouncing back, not bouncing back because people have been told that this black plague is going to kill them, and so the restaurants are running at half capacity, airlines are running at twenty five percent capacity, the whole health and leisure industry is underwater, dying. Many businesses not going to reopen. They just can't. You know, they were never operating at really thick margins anyway. And you take and you throw in this COVID thing, and a lot of them just can't survive. So you have this whole big drag on the economy, an economy which was not growing like crazy anyway. It's growing at like 1.7% per year. You add on this drag, and it's not growing at all. It's it's declining. It's in recession. And what I expect is that. The economy will not bounce back. It will not recover soon. In fact, it will never recover because what's going to happen is the government is going to continue with these programs of providing free money, providing Fed money. Fed's going to prop up Wall Street, and the federal government's going to prop up Main Street with fake money. Fake money doesn't really create a real boom. It creates a phony boom, and in the sense the phony boom is in fact phony. <laughs> it doesn't create real wealth so that they have to keep propping it up. And I suspect mm. that this is going to continue until the whole thing blows up. Yeah, I was just going to say, you've been writing a lot this week about um, the, the ghost of America's future. And uh, you and I sit down here in Argentina, yourself up in Salter, and I'm down here in the capital. But the the Argentines have have tried and tried again and tried a third and a tenth time uh, all of the boneheaded ideas that they're now embarked on uh, up in North America. And uh, we see what's what's happened down here. But um, explain to me the, the Argentine paradox and, and how if America would just look down to some of the lessons um, down here on the Pampas, there, there's a lot to learn about what not to do. Yeah, well, what- <laughs> Yeah, I think what we're going to see is the Argentine paradox running into the American exception. (laughs) The (laughs) Americans think they're not subject to the same rules of economics and finance as everybody else. But down on the pumps here, (laughs) it's kind of amazing. I've been here for about 15 years, you know, off and on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just a different world. People have a different way of thinking about things because they have this experience wherein in 1900, um, Buenos Aires was one of the world's most dynamic and richest cities, and and, uh, and it had a, uh, 
a uh, GDP per capita, which was about equal to England. It was the sixth richest country in the world. And today it's the 80th, number 80 position. It has fallen like a stone. And it's fallen so hard. You get a lot of people have lots. Of, that's why economists study it, because it is not only a case of a country that's fallen a lot, but it's a country that shouldn't have fallen at all. Because Argentina has vast riches, you know, the Pampas are probably the richest, best farmland in the world. And uh, they were making a lot of money by selling beef and selling corn and so on to the rest of the world up until the 1940s. But uh, what happened to Argentina? Another important point is because, you know, people, there's a lot of culture in an economy, which means to say say that uh, that the culture of a people affects how an economy runs. But the culture of Argentina is fundamentally the same culture as, say, Spain or Italy. These people down here are mostly Spanish or Italian, lots of Germans, lots of uh, English, uh, Irish. And so it's fundamentally European country, even though it's in South America. And uh, so you wonder what, how, what happened to these people? You know, how could they fall so hard that now the economy of Argentina is way down there, you know, with African nations, nations that historically have been depressed. And the answer, of course, is a long answer, but the short version of it is that there are a lot of immigrants in Buenos Aires, and Juan Perón came in and was elected in 1946. Juan Perón figured out that if you wanted to win an election in, in Argentina, that you had to appeal to the urban masses and not to the people who were actually producing wealth. The urban masses were recent immigrants mostly, and uh, they came into Argentina with the ideas of their time. And the ideas of the early 20th century were the ideas of unionism, communism, socialism, and all kinds of isms. And those isms ran hot in Buenos Aires back then. He uh, started putting in place all these reforms, which we're very familiar with in the U.S. too. We have uh, we have a, a, a legislated work week. We have uh, minimum wages. We have Social Security. We have universal health care programs. All those things, and they're very expensive, and they're very especially expensive when you combine them with high taxes, and you take over. High taxes on, on the wealthy, by the way, not on the not on the common not on the voters. <laughs> and then you take over key industries. You know, they nationalized the banks, they nationalized the railways. The railways were built and operated by the English, and they nationalized them down here in 1948. And so you have this economy where uh, it's working less and less well, and because they they then imposed high tariffs and high taxes on exports. And exports were the, were the bread and butter, literally, <laughs> of the Argentine economy. And so uh, they, they less income and more expenses. And then over time, they, in order to stay in power, in order to, to win the next election, they had to come up with more things, more giveaways. And it got to be more and more expensive. They were controlling, putting, setting price controls on key things like key food items and on energy and gasoline and things like that because those were the things that their voters wanted. And that had the result of discouraging 
uh, more production in both food and energy. And it also had the effect of ruining the economy so that now so that the economy weakened, taxes went up, and then they had to print money and they had to borrow and they borrowed borrowed <laughs> and what happened is just what ought to happen as they borrowed they were less they were they were worse uh, payers they couldn't pay and they defaulted and Argentina has defaulted 12 times <laughs> I think it was five times five times on domestic debt and seven times on foreign debt but uh, that's what you what they did and then when they after they defaulted they still needed money so they printed it and Argentina started running running high inflation rate just as soon as Juan Perón took over. Inflation rate in 1948 was, was 50%. By the 1970s, early 80s, inflation was running at 5,000%. <laughs> Why was that? Because they, the system was set up so that in order to win an election, you had to give people money. In order to get the money, you had to print it. And, and that system was fin- finally terribly destructive and they had three military coups because <laughs> each time things got out of hand people wanted they wanted more than anything else they wanted stability they wanted safety they were they were riots they were criminal gangs fighting it out and they had they had a battle a real pitched battle between the police and uh, these montaneros and montaneros were radical radical group and they had brought in guns and they fought for over control of a uh, of a town i mean it's amazing things happened and then when the army came in they had to they had to somehow silence the opposition which they did by mostly by killing them <laughs> they picked them up off the street that, that'll do it <laughs> that'll silence them and so one thing after another and the history of argentina is a great history for anybody who's interested in how economies and social systems and politics all work together because they all went down together. You know, when the economy went down, when the money was phony, people started rising up and getting dissatisfied. You had one problem or another and the military would step in and then they would create a problem, a new problem. Anyhow, that's the history of Argentina, which I do think, as you say, it's, it, it's too bad. Americans have been that's the Argentine paradox. And the other side of it is the American exceptional, where Americans believe they are not subject to these same processes. And yet you can see them playing out very clearly, you know, slowly now. We're not, you know, we, we don't have any inflation, but we have the same process of creating inflation. We have the inflation limited to the stock market, but uh, we have the same political pressures. We have the same economic system, fundamentally a system of money printing, and we have the same financial system, which has gone crazy with the stocks selling, a few stocks selling at huge prices, and most of them still taking losses. So anyway, all the ingredients are there for uh, an exciting period ahead. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of that old uh, that old Chinese curse, which is may your children live in interesting times. I'm, I think I'm not alone in looking forward to a, a moment when children live in boring times again. Looking forward to a little <laughs> little normalcy, a little stability. But when you were when you were talking just then about the the pitched battles between the Monteneros and and the the Feds down here in Argentina, I I couldn't help but thinking that's that's not so dissimilar to what we see playing out in the year 2020 in the United States with 
you know, these Occupy uh, Chaz, I think it was, in uh, up in the Northwest, that uh, there are, are angry mobs that are, are marching in the streets right now, uh, demanding, you know, demanding all kinds of, all kinds of things. But uh, this isn't so dissimilar to what happened down here. And I guess, uh, it, do, do you think that when, when the fish rots from the head, when you have a funky money that's, that's corrupt at, at, at its core, then it's only a matter of time before you see that rot kind of set in to the culture and to society in general. Yeah, I think uh, it's hard to know how it works exactly, but but um, it, it does seem to work that way. And we saw in, the, I remember, uh, who was it, uh, Zweig, who was reporting on what happened in, uh, in Weimar, Germany. When the inflation got going, everything fell apart, you know, the, because the social structure is based on a honest money. You know, you, you, you go to work, you earn money that reflects your work. That's the whole idea. But in Weimar, Germany, all of a sudden, a professor at a university, his paycheck was worth nothing. And the, and the professor then would have to dig through trash barrels to try to get enough to eat. Meanwhile, some hustler, you know, who was trading, trading currency on the street corner, or God knows exactly what they were doing, <laughs> but they would be living high on the hog because they figured out that they needed to get dollars rather than Deutschmarks. And, mm-hmm. that sort of, and that undermined the faith that people had in what we call the social contract, which is the sense that things are basically fair, that the system is basically just that people get basically what they've got coming to them. But once that goes, then, then you have, and we see it already in the U.S., I've been reading some of these, uh, well, some of these liberal um, journals and entries, and, and they, many people have come to the conclusion that the system is fundamentally bad. And no further than that, they say it's always been fundamentally bad. <laughs> But uh, now we have to do something about it. And, uh, you know, where that goes, I don't know. But, but they're talking about this. They're openly discussing dismantling the system and admitting to them that the system was always racist mm. or that it was always that or, and capitalism has failed and all these things which are fundamental to me, uh, just the kind of th- ideas that crop up. Because... Remember, the social contract represents the middle. It represents the common man's relationship with the rest of the country and his faith that everything is, it may not be perfect, but it is basically okay. When that Mm. faith goes, you know, then the common man or everybody sort of migrates to the sides. The the center doesn't hold. And so he ends up moving to one, one direction or the other, which is either left or right, typically. And uh, he either concludes that we need a police crackdown and we need soldiers in the streets and we need the military to set things right, or we need a total revolution. Got to line up the uh, rich people and shoot them. <laughs> so, and uh, anyway, that's, that's kind of what always seems to happen when you have a breakdown in the fundamental trust fundamental relationship that people have with their government, with their community. Mm. And that is what we're seeing now. Can't say for sure that it will continue in that direction, but that does seem to be what normally happens. 
Yeah, well, it, you mentioned in a column of yours earlier this week that the, the one thing that both parties seem to agree on in the United States is that more money printing is the answer, uh, is the ultimate answer to all that ails us. And I, I can't imagine um, that come the November general election, that that trajectory uh, is going to change whether candidate A or candidate B is, is elected. No, I don't think uh, uh, there's no resistance at all. None. I, 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 zero. <laughs> not, not, there, there, there may be one member of the U.S. Senate, that's Rand Paul, who is resisting this, but almost nobody else. It's just, it's amazing that that conservative movement seems to have suddenly disappeared entirely, gone AWOL. These guys are just ready to go along with. With, with the whole program and don't see any alternative. Everybody believes that you have to print money in order to tie over through this rough patch. And don't notice that we've been printing money for years. <laughs> with the last rough patch, you know, it came in the, in the crisis of 2008, 2009. And the solution to that was also printing money. And that just kept going. And the rates went down. Remember, the, the Fed set its emergency low rate down at zero and pledged and pledged both sell off all those bonds that it bought in that QE program, the quantitative easing program, and to allow interest rates to return to normal. They started that program, the normalization, in 2015. By 2019, they had barely even started it barely made any progress whatsoever. And all of a sudden, another crisis came along and they quickly abandoned it altogether and began printing money on a scale that we had never seen before. And I don't see any reason, none at all, or nobody, there's no Paul Volcker out there. And so what's going to happen is that the next sign, which is going to come very soon, of crisis, it could be sell off in the stock market. It could be clear evidence that the economy is not recovering. According to the Fed's announcement this week, it could be a simple something as simple as a failure to in, to increase the inflation rate. Any of those things will lead to a another round of rapid money printing, more federal bailouts, money flowing, flying from helicopters all over the country. And I don't see any reason to think that that would go in any other direction. There's just no no body and nothing on the horizon that offers a different opinion. Mm. And, and it fundamentally rests uh, on something that, that our friend and colleague Chris Mayer uh, brought up this week, and that's this, the false idea that there, that there is an ideal and measurable uh, interest uh, uh, rate of inflation that's just kind of out there in the economy, two, that anybody knows exactly what that ought to be, and then three, that any one institutional body has the necessary tools to be able to fiddle and tweak and, and fix it so that that's just right. I mean, that that's, goes back to what Hayek talked about as the, as the pretense of knowledge. We, we can't understand these things. They're too complex for any, any you know, one board of Federal Reserve members or whatever to know, and yet we persist on that, um, on that trajectory. Uh, yeah, those, that, the idea that the Fed knows what inflation rate we, we need, you know, is, is up there in the pantheon of other idiotic ideas, like <laughs> the Fed knows what interest rate 
the country needs. How does it know these things? <laughs> right. And the Fed, the Fed knows what the unemployment rate should be. How do they know these things? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they, of course, they don't know them at all. It's a, as you say, a pretense of knowledge, just very destructive and very yeah. dangerous. I, yeah, that, so this brings us all the way back uh, full circle to uh, it is not given to men to know his fate and the pride goes before the fall. So maybe that's, maybe that's the full circle that we've, we've got uh, yeah. to the decline of empire. All right, Bill. Uh, mate, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat today. I look forward to, uh, to the next time we get to hang out in person. But until then, we'll have to make do on Zoom. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Joel. Pleasure right. talking to you. Cheers, Bill. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.